All right. Well, welcome to Denton North. My name's Tabby, and I'm here to make the announcements. The first one's going to be about the F Focus Family Feud game. Fundraiser, sorry. It is a game, though, so that's still accurate. Um, so as you can see up here, it's on July 20th at 7 p.m. at Northeast Church. That's in Garland. It's going to be $10 for entry. That includes two raffle tickets um, for a chance to play, and additional tickets are $250. So if you are over 22, wait, what? Y'all can read. Y'all are fine. Um, <laughs> that's a lot up there. I'm not reading all that. And then there's also, uh, apparently, uh, Focus is really bad at submitting announcements. So there's a pizza theology that everyone here is invited to. Yeah, Focus staff, I just called you out. Poor, shame, shame, I know your name. Um, so pizza theology is on Saturday. It will be at 10.30. That's not a, a slide, so y'all need to listen and write down if you want to go. It's going to be over Philippians. It's at 10.30 on Saturday, July 20th, and it uh, ends at 3.30. If you're interested, you can register. It's $6 online and then $8 if you pay at the event. And then if you're not planning on eating, it's just $2 on, on, online, and then uh, you can just pay $2 at the event. Do y'all have any questions? Pizza theology, y'all know what it is? We that's a great question. It's at UTDSSA. I don't know where that is. You'll have to talk to a focus staff who did a poor job of announcing it. Yeah. Pizza Philippians? Pizza uh, okay, because it's a fake word. <laughs> okay, I'm going to pray over offering. Um, if you're new here, welcome, first off. Um, but we make sure we pass all the way through and then send it back, so don't feel like you need to send it right behind you unless you're at the very end, Okay. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to give to this community and to those around it and in it, Lord. I pray that you use this to really be a blessing to someone uh, and to provide the needs that they, ha they have. We love you, and we thank you for allowing us to be a part of your good work. It's your name we pray. Amen. Okay, hello. Good morning. My name is Brad, uh, one of the ministers here. Good to see some newer faces. I think some folks coming from Collin, starting to trickle in maybe from college, uh, summer stuff, maybe not, maybe just visiting. But that is uh, something we got to keep sharp of over the next month as we get a lot of our college students back and uh, the rest of our church. Um, we have kind of a, a, I wouldn't say a rift because that's too extreme, but we do, um, kind of from the beginning of our church, we've had this idea that we really want to get people who are graduating excited about adult ministry. And I think sometimes the byproduct of that, we were talking about this in our leader meeting this morning, uh, is that we get unexcited about college somehow. Uh, and so meeting college students, interacting with college students seems sort of like below us as adults, or maybe not below us isn't the right word, but like that's what I did used to uh, in the past. Uh, really, really got two big challenges for you in the next month. The first one is those of you who are adults, really go out of your way to meet college students, okay? Uh, some of you are old enough now to recognize what a college student looks like, okay? You've got at least five or seven years of distance between them, so you should know pretty readily uh, what college students look like. Okay? Yeah? So that's, that's number one. Second one, which is something that I've always uh, kind of struggled with because I'm not the most expressive person myself. I read this really challenging article, and like so many challenges that I give you, I feel challenged myself. Uh, I'm going to post this this week, and I want you to think about it and come prepared uh, next Sunday to worship God with your body. Okay? Um, the article is about how worship has always been about posture and not about something that we think. Worship was always about posturing our bodies physically uh, to respond to the fact that we were in the presence of a great king. 
And so I want to think about that. And because some of you look like dumb zombies out there um, who just don't move their mouths, don't move their bodies. And, uh, you know, I look around and maybe that's okay if you're like super deep in thought. Uh, but for the most part, it, you just look like a dumb zombie. Uh, and I think I can probably look like that a lot too. So we want to uh, maybe think about how we approach God uh, with our body and physically singing loud and, you know, moving and being actually into it. And that being just as important of worship as, you know, the thoughts that are going through my head, which for most of us is nothing um, sometimes in worship. And I get that. And we want to be, you know, realistic and we want to challenge ourselves uh, to worship the great God that, uh, that we serve. So those are two things that uh, keep in your mind this next month um, as we continue on. Okay, so starting a new series today. And the series is on outreach. Uh, part of this series is geared towards uh, our adults, although I think college students, based on um, the response that I got Thursday night preaching at Focus, uh, need this sermon too, okay? And I'm actually going to preach a lot of what I preached on Thursday night. I've kind of tailored it to be a little bit different, um, but it's such an important topic that I want to uh, visit it for the next four weeks. I'm going to talk twice uh, this week and next week. The 28th, Leslie and I will both be out of town. I have two articles that I think will really challenge you and that you'll read those and then share as a body. And then we'll be into our small groups in the first week of August. And we're going to do an awe, alternate worship experience thing based on outreach. And then Christy Von Runnen and Linda Welch, some of you know, some of you don't, are going to come and give uh, their testimony, practical testimony on what it looks like to really do workplace ministry. Uh, and they both have very different experiences with that. And so that's pretty exciting. And um, yeah, that's going to be great. All right. So uh, that's what we're going to do. Um, this is going to come out of Luke 4, and we're going to read that together and then uh, uh, kind of spend some time uh, bringing that to our day and age and understanding what we can learn about uh, outreach from that. Uh, I, I just realized I only gave you one of the reasons, which you probably can't even remember, for why we're doing this. The second reason is because when I asked for people to sign up for our leader team, our adult leader team, nobody chose outreach except for like two people. Now, that changed this morning. People you know, stepped up to the challenge. We had like one of the biggest teams was our outreach team. So that's awesome. Um, but I think there's something that we, and maybe this sermon will explain that, we're kind of naturally, um, uh, we avoid, naturally inclined not to do outreach type stuff. We get kind of nervous when we use the word evangelism and, and maybe for some right reasons, good reasons. But uh, I want to try to talk through some of those things and, uh, and hopefully move us into the direction of uh, being much more involved with people in our lives outside of our uh, community, at least in regard to talking about the gospel. So Luke 4, and uh, I'm just going to read a section of this, all right, at, uh, the section where uh, Jesus goes home and uh, he is praised, right? Uh, although that's not what the title is. Uh, so Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. It's an interesting way of phrasing this because maybe up to this point, um, he had had the spirit kind of come on him in ways, but this was now, you know, his sort of beginning of uh, his ministry in some ways. He had been tested, ready to roll. And news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. So you can see very quickly, he was a popular figure. People liked him. People expected that he was going to come and do awesome things, talk authoritatively. He was well known, Okay. He went to Nazareth, which was where he's from, remember, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Now, he would have already been given this role. This isn't just like something that you do 
stand up, I don't know, where and then read some random thing. It happened that that day, the liturgy was this passage, okay? And so he roll, unrolls it. He found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. All sounds really amazing, right? Year of the Lord's favor is a big deal, uh, both in tradition and in custom. But here's where the really interesting part of this story comes in. Whenever you're reading through this, in any passage ever, what are you always supposed to stop and do? Okay, think about the context. That's always a good thing. See how God's working? Sure, I mean, you know, these are all good things, right? But they're a little too high-minded. Let's just start, like, really low. Okay. <laughs> so, let me, let me rephrase the question, because it's obviously way too broad of a question. When you read a reference, and there's lots of references, go back and read the reference, which may be what you were talking about with context, I think, but go back and read the reference. Because what's really important about this story, and actually anytime Jesus uses a reference from the Old Testament or, or Peter or Paul, usually the reference from the Old Testament explains everything else around it that's going on, which is very weird for us because we read as if this is sort of like a vacuum. Oh, that's a cool quote. I like that. That's nice. Put that up somewhere and move on and read the passage as if the Old Testament reference has nothing to do with it, as if they didn't really work hard to go back and quote. Now, maybe that's some, how you guys write papers. You go find some quote that like more or less says something similar but for people who really know how to use quotes, they use quotes in a way that succinctly uh, uh, makes sense of the whole bigger point they're making because that person said it better than what they could possibly say it in you know, multiple sentences. Well, that's how the scripture is. These are great writers, or at least they're led along by the Holy Spirit. Whenever you see a reference, go back and read the reference and understand it. And in this case, Isaiah, in an exilic period, <coughs> excuse me, is being used by God to tell the Israelites that God is coming back to save them, to take the wealth of the nations and put them under their feet, and to do a whole lot of stuff that will make generation after generation of Israelites be successful. This is the blessing, the uh, making good on the original uh, command that he gave to Abraham and the promises that he gave to him. So when people hear this, they're immediately thinking, hey, we're back in one of those exilic periods, Rome is over us. We need more power. We need wealth. We need to laugh at our enemies. Could this be someone who really will step up and make sure this happens? So this is very exciting to them, okay? Which is why they respond, uh, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today the scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. You can't possibly understand how important a statement like that would have been, all right? Imagine like, the best case scenario for your life. I don't know what that is, okay? Whatever it is. I don't know. A job that you really want, a romantic partner that you want to be with. I don't know. But Jesus basically just gets up and says, today, this thing has happened. Boom, done. It's here. And they're amazed at it, right? That's great. It's a wonderful thing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? meaning isn't this from our town? Isn't this our guy? Uh, and of course, Jesus continued on, yes, I'm Joseph's son, and uh, I'm here for you all and ready to make your town uh, the best of all the towns. Now, that part didn't, didn't actually happen. That was sarcasm. 
Um, instead, Jesus takes a really weird direction with his debut sermon uh, in his hometown. Jesus said to them, surely you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Now, who knows where that came from? We have no idea, but apparently it's a proverb, okay? <laughs> I think probably you don't have to really know where the quote comes from. It kind of just makes sense, right? Uh, if you're a physician, you should probably be able to fix your own body, right? Kind of, right? I'm uh, you know, a mechanic. I should probably be able to fix my own car, <laughs> although my car is in perfect shape and never needs to be fixed. I drive a Lexus. I don't know if y'all know that, but so... Uh, it's a really nice Lexus. It's kind of top of the line. Just saying. It's no big deal. Don't worry about it. Okay? Drive a Lexus, so. But you get where the quote is coming from, right? You're a physician. Heal yourself. You should be able to figure this out. Come on. Okay? Uh, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard you've done in Capernaum. Do all the stuff that we've heard you do here. I mean, why not? We're going to get even bigger here, right? Because we're already on your side. We're ready to promote you, to be excited about you, and uh, you know, you're going to do some amazing things here. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to a widow in the region of Sidon, which would have been a people who the Jews did not like, as you can imagine. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian, again, a group of people in Syria not liked. Whoa, what in the world just happened? All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove them out of town, took him to the brow of the hill of, uh, and were ready to throw him off a cliff. Now, I mean, the comedy, the fear of this story, whatever, is pretty amazing. They go from loving him, thinking he's great, uh, to ready to kill him. He slips away, who knows how, whatever. What in the world is going on here, all right? Um, I've been reading a book. Many of you have heard it before. And the focus deal on Thursday night, I quoted from it quite a bit. I didn't bring the book. I'm not going to quote from it here at all. But what I'm going to tell you that it's a great book. It's written by uh, as many of uh, I've already said this many times, but it's really kind of impacted how I think about this, this stuff. And all I'd have is how I think about it because I'm not very good at evangelism. Uh, I just like to think about it a lot, um, which makes me a tiny bit more spiritual than those who don't think about it a lot, uh, but less than those of you who actually do something about it. So. Uh, and it's written by a Catholic priest who decides to just stop doing schooling and medicine for people in Africa and actually finally go and just talk to them directly and tell them, hey, I'm not going to offer you anything. And he goes to this you know, tribe that's pretty well known and blah, blah, blah. Well, one of the stories he tells is about a tribe that at the end of having done this four or five times uh, and watching people have different reactions, he said, you know, the, the one that most stuck with me uh, or one of the ones is then at the end of, of me telling them all this stuff and calling for a response from them, they said, you know, we're pretty interested in this stuff, but the whole going to other villages and talking to them about it, I don't think we're really going to do that. I'll tell you what, we'll hire or we'll send one guy from among us who he thinks the most articulate, and you can pay him, and he'll go and tell other people about this, this news that you've given. He's like, man, that sounds a lot like what churches do. And he said, you know, I had to leave 
understanding that they had ultimately rejected the core of the gospel, which was about not taking it in an insular fashion, in a it's about us kind of fashion, and understanding that the basic of the gospel is about talking about and proclaiming the good news to other people. And he said, uh, you know, it was just weird to have to leave uh, with, uh, with this kind of rejection uh, in mind. Let me give you three things that I've been thinking about uh, a lot lately, and you can kind of decide uh, if they're from God, if they're not, uh, whatever. Number one is the good news. Oh, I didn't even say the title. Oops, sorry. Let me back up a little bit. This brilliant title I came up with today is the good news is bad news for some. All right, Luke 4. Good news is bad news for some. Okay, number one, God, the good news upsets people's private world. The good news upsets people's private world. One of the most, uh, I think, clear things from this picture is that the people had up to this point envisioned the good news as primarily about them, as having an impact on them, as promising hope for them, as being about them. And as Christians, we are often guilty of making the good news about us. That when we really think about it, the good news is about, well, we're saved. We're being, you know, uh, made into this image of Jesus. We're, uh, you know, we, we, we get to be together as a community. We have all these great friendships, all of this stuff, which is no real different or any real different than what the people of Israel were hearing when Jesus came to do these amazing things among them. And yet they, he challenged their insular culture, their inward focus to the core by telling him, you know what? In these difficult times, this message that you've applied to yourself, God instead sent his missionaries to two people who didn't deserve it, who were completely outside of the community. But the good news upsets our uh, people's private worlds. It just does. It upsets people's private world, both telling and receiving it. We receive the good news, it's going to upset my private world because I can no longer go back and simply think about the things the way I used to. The good news changes that, okay? Of course, unless I reject it, and even when I reject it, once I've heard it, it's sort of going to be in my mind. But telling the good news to people upsets our private world. We have this idea now that you're not allowed to talk about religion and politics in public arenas, which doesn't make any sense because people still do it with politics, but it's interesting that people still don't talk much about religion. Unless it's sort of like the Eastern, you know, Buddhism, uh, you know, stuff that's kind of like, or Confucianism, it's not really religion. It's sort of like just kind of pick and pull what you want. It's pretty easy. I think about this a lot. Uh, for those of you who've taken pre-E and you've done the communication lesson, it talks about these sort of five levels of communication. And these levels range from acquaintance, you know, where you just kind of talk about stuff, to passing information, to finally talking about your private world, to really being open emotionally with people. Well, the gospel's kind of like that. It's one of those higher level communication uh, uh, things that we do that upsets the private world. You can have a lot of conversations with people that don't upset your private world. They're just information sharing that are making each other both feel really good about yourselves through whatever else. But there's something in sharing the gospel with people that upsets both our and their private worlds. And uh, we often don't want to have to be involved in that. Even so, many of the conversations as Christians we have with each other don't upset our private worlds. We can get along with just pretending like we both have the same values and beliefs and we're both on the same page without really challenging each other. 
This is the issue that Paul brings up when he talks about how people are challenging people outside the church and not challenging people inside the church. They don't want their private worlds upset. And if there's one absolute postmodern rule to how our society works is we do not want to upset our private worlds. We just don't. We want our private world to stay our private world. And and if we allow someone to come into it, fine. But uh, we don't want those things upset. Jesus came in and he upset their private world. The good news upsets people's private world, both in those who tell and both in those who receive. The point that I had at Focus, one of them Thursday night, was you cannot control whether people will like the good news, only that you did or did not proclaim it. One of the hardest things about good newsing, gospeling, is the idea that probably more often than not, someone will, mostly politely, because you don't have to force and be aggressive, reject what it is you're saying. Discipleship, for most parts, a home run. We get to meet with someone, we see them growing, we have great hope and intention that you know, things are going to get better. With the good news, we face rejection directly. And it's just tough. It is just tough, but you cannot control whether people will like the good news only that you did or did not proclaim it to them. My third point, and I'm going to kind of wrap up with my long series of short sermons lately, which are great. I love it. And this one, I really uh, don't, it's kind of not my own idea. Uh, I basically stole it straight up from one of the articles that you're going to read here in a couple weeks. And that is that we ought to get rid, and I, I still, honestly, just to give you kind of a primer to this, um, I'm not for sure where I'm at with the article, um, because uh, I think it challenges us in some ways and has some, some, some kind of fear-guilt kind of stuff in it. And I'm, I'm always react to fear-guilt stuff slowly and cautiously, because I think we've got to be careful about the fear-guilt thing. Um, because it's such an easy tool to use to get people to do something or think something quickly. And sometimes it's necessary and sometimes it's not. But anyway, the article basically says we ought to drop the whole sharing the gospel out of our language completely. Because sharing the gospel is a way for us to pretend that we only share the gospel when someone desires it. And that the gospel is only for people who want the gospel. The whole idea of sharing when you're, you know, uh, you know, telling a kid to share is someone desires something and you want them to give it to it. And that whole language betrays the fact that the gospel for a lot of people is not something they desire or want in the time period they're in. This is one of the other aspects of it that's difficult is discipleship. For the most part, someone wants it, desires it. They're in a time frame where it works. But for many of us, having to plant the seed or do a little watering is much less fun than doing the dunking, which makes us feel like the grower. And that's something completely different that I'll get to in a moment. But the whole idea of sharing the gospel versus proclaiming it might be something we ought to drop from our language completely. And there's probably a lot of things we ought to drop from our language, or at least explain and do more work uh, to help people understand, both Christians and those who aren't. We've got to proclaim the gospel, not just share it. Proclamation means some people are going to like it, some people are not, but it has little to do with how they receive it and everything to do with whether we've actually proclaimed it. And I know what you're thinking, maybe some of you, this is the whole, what about St. Francis of Assisi, you know, who says, you know, preach the gospel and when necessary, use words. I think that's helpful in some ways. But what I told the group Thursday night at Focus was, guys, it has become necessary to use words now. We live in a culture and a society where it has become necessary to use words. 
this idea that you're going to good people into a gospel conversation is really not going to work in a society that cares a lot about people portraying themselves as good. No one's going to know your goodness apart from someone else's goodness unless you put the target on your back of making it clear, I'm attempting to be like Jesus in the things that I'm doing and use your words to back those things up. So this idea that we're going to be good enough that people are going to recognize our behavior and we're going to do things that are great, in my mind, is very similar to what Vincent Donovan in his book is basically arguing against. He says, you know, we've spent the last hundred years giving medicine, education to these tribal people and haven't really made any headway in the gospel. I'm going to go in five years and just preach the gospel to him and see where we are after that. And he does. And it changes the way that missions are done in this area for a long time after. But guys, don't you see this whole add-on thing, this whole making uh, you know, other things besides proclaiming the gospel, headliners, you know, basically allow us to get back to that idea of sharing the gospel. We're going to give you something valuable, so hopefully the gospel will be a little bit more palatable to you. So that maybe by our good friendship with you, maybe because we're feeding you, maybe because we're doing all of these things in addition to just talking to people about the gospel, maybe then you'll be more desirous of it. And that can become easily a path for us to not proclaim the gospel at all, but simply be people who give people good things in no way different than other people who give other people good things out of their own effort, out of their own good intentions, whatever that thing is. And so we just have to be careful with that because if it becomes an excuse, if it becomes a background thing um, and the gospel isn't at front and center, we can get in ourselves into a lot of trouble. Now that doesn't mean at all that using words is the only way the gospel can be proclaimed to people. I think words are incredibly important, and I'm, I'm so much emphasizing that now because I think we've lost the use of being able to talk to people about the gospel, at least in our community. I don't know. Okay? And saying some words I, uh, is, not saying, uh, is not better than just saying nothing sometimes. Sometimes saying some words when they're inappropriate, when they're forceful, when they have very little to do with God and more to do with your own you know, religious guilt can actually cause more harm than if you would have just shut up and done nothing in the first place. So this is not one of those go out and just say something, okay? Kind of like the folks holding signs about faggots going to hell and things like that. And excuse me, my language. Saying something isn't necessarily better. And there are plenty of things that we can do uh, to, uh, in terms of helping people and loving people that highlights the good God that we serve. The problem is apart from proclamation, most people at the end of the day just think you're some nice guy or nice girl. When it's not clear that the reason that you do some of the things that you do is because of the good God you serve, you're not really proclaiming the gospel. You're proclaiming something else, some self-help thing. What proclaiming does is, like I said, it puts a target on our backs. I can't tell you how many times people say, you're a pastor? Why do you cuss? <laughs> and I've wondered about this a lot myself. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I'm not sold. Uh, uh, I, I go back and forth, and I know, uh, I don't know. I don't want to talk about that one too much. I'm just trying to give you a... a <laughs> An example of what happens when you begin to talk and proclaim the gospel, a target is on your back and people start asking questions, okay? And this might be a bad example, but using bad examples uh, gets me off the hook uh, from having to use positive ones, but then I'm held accountable for what I just said I did. Uh, but it puts a target on our back. It really does. When we start talking and proclaiming the things, people start to take notice of our actions much, much closer. 
And by not talking, we get to kind of slowly pretend, you know, uh, like we're not Christians and become those practical atheists that N.T. Wright talks about. Never really proclaiming the gospel, just hoping somehow, somewhere, someone might ask us the, you know, question we've all been hearing. Can you please tell me about Jesus? As if that happens. Number two is it challenges our thinking. Proclaiming the gospel really challenges our thinking. And again, this unsettles our private world. When we have to talk to people in real time about things that they, believe it or not, have actually thought about at least as much as you, if not more, it challenges our thinking. Sometimes this, this is thinking thinking in terms of apologetics and being able to have a good answer and rational thinking. But more often than not in our culture, and we've talked about this a lot with apologetics, it's more about thinking through your own experiences. Why do I say that God has done that in my life? When this other person says something similar has happened and it was just chance, it makes you think through your experiences. And it challenges your thinking. But at the end of the day, guys, proclaiming it is really, really unrewarding and risky for a lot of us because of the rejection involved. And we've got to rethink how the good news is really good news and is good news whether people accept it or not because Paul and Peter and the other apostles loved to go around telling the good news and delighted, delighted in the rejection that they received. How is that possible? I'm going to talk about that next week. But how is it possible that they could delight in the rejection uh, that they received and not in some sort of like masochistic, is that right? Or is it masochism, right? Is that self-harm? I said that right. Okay. I usually say sadism, but good. I'm good. I'm awesome. Um, I'm not a masochist. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's unrewarding and it's risky, guys. It, 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 for most of us, it's, it's a simple uh, cost-benefit analysis. Tonight, I'm going to spend time with someone who's a friend of mine, who's a Christian, who I can pour into, and I've got eternal rewards for doing that. <laughs> or I can hang out with that annoying coworker who seems to at least kind of like to hang out with me sometimes or have that conversation uh, and just it be annoying and terrible and risky and whatever else. And when those things come together, cost-benefit analysis, any sane human being is going to choose the other. The problem is, uh, you know, obvious that when we become insular like that, we're really not proclaiming the good news anymore. We've become simply just spending time around people who make us comfortable and don't unsettle our private world. That's not the gospel. We've, we've mixed that up. It's become uh, backwards. It's fallen back on itself. Uh, I had a really stupid analogy for this, and I'm not going to use it because I just don't think uh, it's going to work. Yeah, I'm going to use it. Um, so think about it like this. Just help me a little bit or, or bear with me a little bit here, okay? It's kind of like the idea of do I want to go and garden and like make my own food that I can eventually cook and then eat? Or do I want to just sort of like go to a restaurant where I know there's good food already? Discipleship and evangelism are very much like that, okay? Evangelism, we literally plant seeds, we do some watering, and it's like, man, I have no idea if this is going to end up good food. I have no idea. It's going to take some weed work. It's going to take, uh, I hate gardening with a, a fierce passion. It is a terrible thing. Gardening is very, very difficult. I don't understand why people do it. Um, it seems very random and, and full of chance. <laughs> uh, and I'd much rather just go to the restaurant where everything's well prepared, where I know it's going to cost me more, sure. Remember what Jesus tells the apostles. 
you guys are reaping a harvest that you did not sow. And most of us, that is our approach to all kinds of ministry. We would rather reap a harvest that we did not sow. And that's not the gospel, guys. That's just not the gospel. Um, The gospel is about planting, it's about watering, and watching God make things grow. It's about both making and maturing disciples. I'm going to give you an assignment this week, and I'm going to be done. Uh, I want to ask you a question that I've started asking, and I say started, uh, you know, in the same way that someone starts something that they haven't done yet. Uh, And... uh, the first thing is just simply ask people, and this could be, you could kind of tailor your own question because some of this is more towards people you've interacted with maybe for a few weeks or months, but never actually had a kind of spiritual conversation with. Uh, and you need to kind of put this in your own words too, because some of this can sound weird, flippant, inappropriate. But one of the questions that I have started asking, I've asked it twice, uh, is, hey, do you believe in God? <laughs> uh, and you've got to be careful because again, this isn't like a flippant, so the waitress comes and lays, you know, puts uh, uh, food on your table and like, hey, by the way, do you believe in God? Uh, that's just not appropriate. This is more like a sitting in a, a space, the conversation goes quiet, something, whatever, that's not flippant and like inappropriate, okay? And again, you might have a better question. Great, good for you. Um, share it with us so that we can kind of use it. The follow-up questions are better for this one. Uh, why not is one. Ever have is another one. A lot of people do believe in God, you'll find. Uh, So one of the questions that uh, I've thought about asking is, do you believe he's good and knowable? Yeah, I don't know. Do you believe he's good and or knowable, that you could actually know him? Because the sort of theistic God of like, um, he's out there, but we don't know him. We can't really determine anything about him, but maybe he, he exists. And then I will say that this question crosses a line in um, conversation particularly in terms of intimacy. And so I, I hold this out as a question that you need to consider carefully. Um, and by the way, these are self-sufficient questions. If they lead to a conversation, great. If they don't, that's fine. <laughs> the idea of being forceful and like pushing through a conversation is not proclaiming the gospel. Uh, it's taking a captive audience <laughs> and Bible, uh, uh, browbeating them. Uh, what would God have to do to prove it? That's the crossing the line question. You gotta be careful with that one, I think, because... Um, it, it's a forceful question. And do you have to decide whether the conversation sort of warrants that? Um, uh, what would God have to do to prove it? Um, if, uh, you know, it, it, uh, saying he does exist. And the hypothetical questions are so much fun because in our postmodern uh, way of thinking, hypotheticals really are uh, um, the way we think. We think of hypotheticals and that's, that can be fine. Questions, thoughts before I uh, have the praise team coming back up? How, how, do, how do you prove it? Uh, just not, basically in that case, um, you know, the, and I've only actually asked this once in the last like two weeks, um, but it was because a conversation kind of continued of, uh, wasn't yes or no answers. It was like a decent question. Because, you know, one of the things you'll find is when people ask, when you ask that, people feel the need to ask you back, <laughs> uh, whether they want to or not, you know. Um, and you can decide. If they give you quick answers, I give quick answers. That's pretty great. But in this case, it was, uh, you know, why do you believe in God? Uh, and so it gave me an opportunity uh, to kind of share that. And then, uh, uh, yeah, led to that. Um, uh, what, uh, you know, what would God have to do to prove it? Uh, and the answer was, I don't know. I don't, that's really hard to think through. So there was no answer. It wasn't like some successful, like, ooh, we, we, I, I had the right question, you know, we like got deep. 
they were like, I have no idea. That's such a crazy question. <laughs> like, how do you even decide what God has to do to prove he that is real? You know, what's someone going to say, really? I mean, it's kind of a hard question uh, to answer. But you guys can come up with these. These aren't like some special, wonderful, thoughtful uh, questions. All right. Anything else? Questions, comments? Yeah. They are intention. And I think the proclaiming has to do with having um, introducing conversations that are appropriate because you're still introducing. I mean, that's you're still guiding those conversations. Um, I think one of the things I had the biggest problem with with the article is it, it, it doesn't define that itself. So, you know, we got to remember that it goes back to there was a movement in apologetics in the 40s and 50s where people would proclaim the gospel in a very short, condensed way as if getting people to have that information was unlocking some, like, um, secret room in their house uh, that, like, opened up all the answers to life questions. That, that's not what we're thinking here, that somehow forcing a quick 15-second portrayal of beginning and end and the sacrifices is somehow uh, doing that at all. Proclaiming the gospel can be something as simple as asking someone to consider and think about God and making yourself noble as someone willing to, to be able to talk about that. Uh, and I think that uh, that's completely fine. Um, now, I say that once you've had some of those conversations, calling for a response and things like that, something completely completely different. I gave the example on Thursday, and I have a lot of examples, but you know, I'm pretty terrible at it. So I, I'm like a like it's very starting level, but I want to be better. Is of a guy that I met with for a whole year uh, at uh, IHOP about every other week. Um, so that's my biggest regret. Uh, <laughs> He loved philosophy, talked philosophy. And I let him sometimes talk my ear off about philosophy and ask some questions. And a lot of it was just getting to know him. And, uh, you know, I talked to the gospel, about the gospel some. We tried to start, study the Bible. It lasted for like one week or maybe two. And uh, 10 years later, he looks me up on Facebook and he's a Christian. Christian, uh, And, um, you know, he had a bunch of legal stuff at the time, but he's now wanting to start a prison ministry. And one of the other guys on Thursday night, his dad's starting prison ministry. Anyway, this, things just work out that way. You know, that, that's the thing with evangelism often is there's no real, like, uh, immediate gratification and there's no uh, sense of I've done something meaningful. What you really, it's like gardening. God makes things grow. Uh, and that's just much harder. But I think there is a tension. And I think the tension is not about forcing our way. It's someone might just not want to have to even think about that topic uh, or address it. Or that maybe they have a really stupid excuse and you feel led and called to kind of challenge them a little bit on their excuse for it. I don't know. Any others? Before we break? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you break down a lot of barriers and uh, from people being like, oh, you're a Christian and you can still cuss? Oh, cool. <laughs> no, 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 sorry. <laughs> oh, you're a Christian and you believe in, uh, you know, some form of evolution? It's like, oh my gosh, you know, you're still struggling through that, thinking through that? Well, I didn't even think that was possible. So it takes down obstacles. Sure. And I think that's the thing we talked about some with our apologetic classes in the uh, past. The more you have a clear and concise salesman type answer, the less people generally respect. And uh, because, you know, they're a project. They become someone you're just trying to give a message to that you've passed on over and over again. It's not about what Jesus did, which was interact with people uh, at an intimate level, each one, one-on-one, -on -one, personally. It's about just sort of canvassing the area and hoping that, uh, you know, someone will come in. And, um, yeah, so... I think that's a, an excellent point. Any other guys? Thoughts? Questions? Yeah?
Right. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, it, it's a rejection for sure. And, um, and I think trying to force something along the way is difficult. But I think one of the things that's weird about the way we think about private worlds is that um, you know, having a friend is, means, or even a close acquaintance, means that you ought to be sharing with them the things that come natural to you in your life. And if so if they're tired of hearing about your Christianity, that's, it's not really a friendship. That's, you know, now, are you talking about like all the time, like every time you get around, like that's not a normal friendship. You know, if you feel like you've got to mention Jesus, like every second of every conversation, no one's like that. And if they are, no one wants to be around them. Um, so I think that, uh, that's a part of it is that through your own testimony and your example, there are still opportunities there, but yeah, I mean, if it's someone's made it very clear that they're not interested, I mean, you can challenge that to some degree, depending on how close you are, but it's okay for people to reject faith, you know? Um, doesn't mean that it's a, it's a timely thing with the God that we serve is a God of choice. Um, so yeah, so I think there's plenty of relationships like that with me where I've just not, you know, it's like, well, we're friends and we, we talk and that's great. You know, and you've got to decide how much to invest in those um, because there's nothing wrong with that. Um, just because someone's rejected it for the time doesn't mean that they've rejected it for forever. It's incredibly important. Thoughts? Any more questions? All right. Well, we're going to do our communion as we normally do here. Um, and uh, the way we do communion is we dip the bread into the juice. Try your best not to get your fingers in the juice. Okay. That's incredibly disgusting. Uh, if you drop one in, just uh, let that be for your homies and uh, move on, get another piece of bread, okay? Please don't try to fish it out. Uh, so our communion sometimes can come across as a little bit uh, strange and maybe irreligious, uh, but we very much believe that the initial folks who did communion uh, in the uh, early Testament period of the scripture were doing communion at a, a meal, as a family meal. They were celebrating, they were joyous, they wanted to share uh, you know, their life together and this was an, a huge significance for them. And so that doesn't mean that we have to all sit and you know, uh, penance or penitence, I don't know, and be sad and think about like the cross as much as we can. Um, but it does mean that we focus on uh, our reverence for God who brings us together in community. And, uh, and that we think about the opportunities that we have to really be the gospel in our community, be the gospel to each other. And, um, you know, it's just an all, a time to do that. And so it's not like you have to like change your thinking or your conversations, but it's just one more opportunity that we can focus on the community that God has given us and be thankful for it. Lord God, I pray that you would give us some insights into uh, this whole gospeling thing. Uh, I'm not good at it. I don't know how to lead much in it other than ideas that are untested, and I uh, pray that you would raise up among us people who have giftings in this area and who have um, just uh, experience and, and your spirit would lead and guide us, that we would not be an insular church. Uh, we wouldn't be satisfied with just making leaders and, and uh, the maturing part of discipleship, but that we would truly be able to plant seeds where we go, um, to have loving and kind uh, conversations with people but firm to proclaim the good news, the public news uh, of your love for us and your, your purpose for us. Thank you, Jesus, for uh, giving us the best example uh, of God that we have and um, for coming here to uh, be uncomfortable, to upset our private worlds, um, to uh, risk your own life, uh, give your own life um, to get us to think and to know God. Amen.
Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.